Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 34. Last week, I continued with the places found in the territory assigned to the Danites, which is only a speed bump in their history. Why? Because they never came to control their territory, and instead decided to move someplace else. And with that, let's get started. Embedded in this part of Joshua is a look forward. From the text, When the territory of the Danites was lost to them, the Danites went up and fought against Lashem. And after capturing it and putting it to the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, renaming the town of Lashem Dan, after their ancestor by the same name. Rooted in this are a couple of noteworthy things. The first is that the Danites never fully came to control their territory, or lost it to an invading force. That part is obvious. As is that they ended up moving to the northern reaches of the Promised Land. But there's something else, more implicit than explicit. And that's that Joshua, at least in this passage, was written well after the Israelites arrived in Canaan perhaps even after Joshua lived. Samson was from the tribe of Dan, and he was a judge who lived during the period of the judges, so after Joshua. The narrative around the migration to northern Israel can be found in Judges 18. Instead of waiting until I get to that part of the text, I'll cover that passage and the city of Dan in this portion of the podcast. The passage in Joshua reads, When the territory of the Danites was lost to them, the Danites went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and putting it to the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan, after their ancestor Dan. This is the inheritance of the tribe of Dan, according to their families, these towns with their villages. Then, in the first chapter of Judges, we're told, The Amorites pressed the Danites back into the hill country. They did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites continued to live in Harhirs, Ajahan, and Shalbim. We're given more clarity and a more complete narrative in Judges 18, though the first part of the passage seems to have forgotten what was written in Joshua and earlier in Judges, or maybe something was lost in translation, or something different. From the text, and with the usual paraphrasing, In those days there was no king in Israel, meaning this was the period of the judges and before the uniting of Israel under Saul. Verbatim from the text, In those days the Danites was seeking for itself a territory to live in, for until then no territory among the tribes of Israel had been allotted to them. Which, of course, doesn't match up with the text in Joshua, and not really with that earlier in Judges. You can draw your own conclusions on what that means and how to reconcile the difference. As for me, I'll keep moving on. The Danites sent five brave men from the whole number of their clan to spy out the land and to explore it. When they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, they stayed there. While they were at Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they went over and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? 
What is your business here? He said to them, Micah did this and that for me, and he hired me, and I have become his priest. Then the Danites said to him, Inquire of God that we may know whether the mission we are undertaking will succeed. The priest replied, Go in peace. The mission you are on is under the eye of the Lord. The five men went on, and when they came to Laish, they observed the people who were there living securely, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing and possessing wealth. Furthermore, they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with Aram. All of this meaning they seemed to be independent of the usual regional powerhouses. After this, the five spies traveled back to some of their tribe and reported their findings. Then, six hundred Danite men, armed with weapons of war, set out, went up, and encamped at Kiriath Jeharim in Judah. Because of this, the place where they encamped is called Mahane Dan, to this day, indicating this part of the narrative was written later. The place where they encamped was west of Kiriath Jeharim. After this, they passed on to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men said to their comrades, Do you know that in these buildings there are an ephod, a teraphim, and an idol cast of metal? Now therefore, consider what you will do. There's a lot more to this story, but it really doesn't add much to the overall tell, except to serve as an indication that the Danites were no longer in the territory of the other Israelite tribes and were among the Canaanites essentially relaying that they were not taking territory from their brothers and sisters, but instead from people who should have been driven out earlier, or who were on the periphery of the promised land. There is another interpretation that these people were Israelites, but weren't quite adhering to the religious laws and practices. The Danites, after having taken what Micah had made, meaning his religious implements, along with the priest who belonged to him, finally came to Laish. Here, they found the people exactly as their spies had described, quiet and unsuspecting, which made them sitting ducks for the armed men who quickly, and as the text describes it, put them to the sword and burned the city to the ground. We're also reminded that Laish was not protected by either Sidon nor Aram and no one came to their rescue. The Danites rebuilt the city, then lived there. They also renamed it Dan, the name it has to the modern day. But all wasn't well as they set up the idol they'd stolen from Micah for themselves. There's more to it, as Jonathan, the grandson of Moses, along with his sons, became their priest, which was at least directionally correct as Moses was a Levite and his brother Aaron was the first priest, and the head of the priestly tribe. So, while the Danites' priests weren't the sons of Aaron, they were his nephews. Like I said, directionally correct. The sons of Jonathan would serve as the Danites' priest for centuries, or, as the text describes, until the time the land went into captivity. This is likely the Assyrian captivity which began around 733 BC, though it could also be the Babylonian captivity, 
which was just over a century later. More on that in a minute. Then the text gives a little more clarity, retelling that the Danites maintained Micah's idol as if it were their own, or at least as long as the house of God was at Shiloh, meaning the temple was in Shiloh. The implication here is that when David had the tabernacle moved to Jerusalem, the Danites stopped worshipping this idol, though the priest remained. To be clear, though, this is never explicitly stated in the text. And that's how the Danites came to leave their assigned territory and ended up well north of there, in the city of Dan. Which gets me to the history of that place. The Old Testament relays that the city of Dan was the northernmost city within Israelite territory. This makes perfect sense, given the tale of how the Danites chose that place to resettle, after being unable to drive the more native Canaanites and Philistines from their assigned territory. The site of the ancient city is in essentially the same place as the modern city with the same name though the archaeological site is more succinctly defined as being on Tel Dan. In Arabic, it's somewhat aptly named Tel El-Khadi, which translates to the Tel of the Judge. It would go by this name until the modern nation of Israel was established, when it reverted back to the ancient moniker. Like the stories in Joshua and Judges recount, Prior to the arrival of the migrating Danites, it was known as Laish, at least in most of the text. Though Joshua 19 does give its name as Lasham, Isaiah gives its prior name as Lasha. We're told that the Danites, and in addition to erecting the idol taken from Micah, built a sanctuary for the idol. As if that wasn't enough. Later, they would place one of King Jeroboam of northern Israel, one of his two golden calves, in the temple. You should be able to see where this is going. More on those young cattle in a minute. Researchers think the captivity mentioned in the text is indeed that of Assyria, and related to when King Tiglath-Pileser III conquered the territory in 733 B.C. As for the reference to the temple moving from Shiloh, this may be related to King Hezekiah's religious reforms in the 8th century BC, so after Saul, David, and Solomon. Or it could be the moving of the tabernacle from Shiloh to Jerusalem. There is a minority view that the time of captivity from the text may actually refer to when the ark was held captive by the Philistines. After they defeated the Israelites, and at a battle somewhere between Ebenezer and Aphek. In this case, the ceasing of the house of God at Shiloh would refer to the same event. All of this based solely on the same passage and the interpretation that the two events needed to occur simultaneously. According to both 2 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 13, Jeroboam cast two golden calves as idols one each in Bethel and Dan. Most biblical scholars believe that Jeroboam was trying to outshine Solomon's temple in Jerusalem by creating a seat for God that spanned the whole kingdom of northern Israel, rather than just the small space above the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. Recall that the appropriately named Mercy Seat 
on the top of the ark was bookended by cherubs, one on each side. In this theory, King Jeroboam might have been using the calves to represent the sides of his seat for God, implying his whole kingdom was equal in holiness to the ark. To me, at least, this theory seems rather odd, especially having Jeroboam using the God-forsaken golden calves as part of the mercy seat. It's like he'd never heard what happened to the Israelites who fashioned the last such idols. And that's the city of Dan, as found in the biblical text. But before jumping into the outside record, first a word on how we know what we know about the ancient Dan. In 1849, an American naval officer, William Lynch, identified Tel Al-Qadi as the ancient site of Dan. Three years later, Edward Robinson would draw the same conclusion. A quick sidebar about Lynch. He saw his first naval service in 1819 under the legendary Matthew Perry. Nearly 30 years later, in 1847, he led a U.S. naval expedition of 16 sailors to the Jordan River. As part of this, two somewhat small boats, one of galvanized iron and the other of copper, were transported overland by camels. Each boat was assembled and then placed on a carriage. His expedition ended with the exploration of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. As part of this, the expedition was the first to determine that the Dead Sea was below sea level, something that the scientific community had inferred, but not previously determined conclusively, despite several other expeditions by Europeans attempting to do so. In the outside record, and as uncovered by archaeological excavations at Tel Dan, the town was originally occupied in the period between the Late Stone Age and the Early Copper Age, meaning around 4500 BC. But, about 1,000 years later, so in the neighborhood of 3500 BC, it was abandoned and remained as such for close to another 1,000 years. It was then marginally reoccupied. Then, around 1750 BC, placing it in the Middle Bronze Age, a city gate was constructed. In this era of walled cities, and therefore the necessary gates through the walls and into the city, mud bricks were placed atop huge basalt stone blocks. In the case of Dan, the gate has been modernly dubbed Abraham's Gate. This is because in Genesis 14, Abraham traveled to Dan to rescue his nephew Lot. The gate was restored in the 21st century and has become a popular spot for tourists snapping photographs. It's circling back to Abraham and embedded in that story is a little historical nugget. In Genesis, the city was called Dan, but we know from the history found later in the Old Testament that at the time it was likely Laish or maybe an earlier name. In fact, the man Dan, the city would be named after, hadn't yet been born. Remember that Abraham was the father of Isaac, who also hadn't been born when Abraham rescued his nephew Lot. And Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Dan. Scholars who strictly read the text think this points to the book of Genesis not being written by Moses, 
as by the time he died. The migration of Dan to northern Israel was decades, maybe even a century away. Of course, there are numerous other explanations, such as a later scribe changed the name to Dan, or possibly later translators. I'll leave it up to you to choose which one you go with. As for me and my house, it doesn't make a difference in our Christian faith. Moving along. The ancient Egyptians would curse the town in their excreation text, though they did that for many places outside of their territory. Sometime after those texts were written, Thutmose III would conquer the place. This was in the 15th century BC, so well before the Danites would burn the city down. The archaeological record seems to indicate that at some point Laish was allied with the Sidonians, despite what was said in Judges though the alignment may have been well before the Danites showed up. General thinking is if they were allied with the Sidonians, then the people of Laish may have been Philistines themselves, since the Sidonians were considered to be these recently arrived seafarers. While the two places may have been allied, the distance between them was too great for it to be of any practical benefit. And, as if this wasn't enough of a barrier, the Lebanon mountains that rose between them offered an additional hurdle. All of this is very telling. While I paraphrase the passage in Judges about the Danites killing the people of Laish, there is something worthy of a quote, at least now. Judges 19 reads that the people of Laish were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with Aram. When this is combined with the outside archaeological record, it begins to make more sense. Too far to matter, especially when the people were described as living quiet and unsuspecting lives, not on guard for the potential of an invading force. While Joshua and Judges specifically says that the previous residents were not allied with Aram Damascus, the reason for this may have been of a similar nature. Between Laish and Damascus were the Hermon Mountains. Later Old Testament texts would relay similar information. The Septuagint mentioned that the town was unable to have an alliance with the Arameans. I'm not quite sure what the word unable means in this context. The Masoretic text does not mention the Arameans at all, but instead states that the town had no relationship with any man which itself is an awkward phrase. Researchers, in this case, and more specifically textual scholars, believe this is a scribe's error, pointing out that the ancient Hebrew word for man, Adam, is extremely close to the word, name really, Aram, as in the Arameans. That certainly seems plausible. Back in the city, there's the matter of the wall related to Abraham, it's thought this wall remained in place through the Iron Age. This may or may not align with the biblical text. Remember that the Danites were said to have burned the city down and killed the residents. Nothing was said about the wall itself. Inside this wall, and close to the city's gate, the one named after Abraham, parts of a stele were found, one that would end up being named for the city. These fragments were uncovered during an archaeological expedition in 1993. 
The basalt stone relic bears an Aramaic inscription referring to one of the kings of Aram Damascus. As a reminder, Aramaic is a Semitic language, making it within the same language family as Hebrew. The excavators of the site believe that the king it refers to is Hazael, who lived around 840 BC. A few other researchers think the king may have been slightly later, but still in the 9th century BC, Ben Hadid. On the stone is an inscription that may make reference to the house of David. A different part of the text speaks of the king of Israel. There's something significant about these two phrases. This is the oldest record of King David uncovered from an archaeological dig. Prior to this discovery, all uncovered references to King David were dated after about 500 BC, which put them at least 500 years after his reign. About the same period was when the Arameans, meaning the people living in the area around Aram Damascus, invaded. After the northerners took over, it appears that the city of Dan grew. The general thinking is that this was because Dan was the closest city in northern Israel to the Arameans. Though this wasn't without a downside. The Books of Kings implies that Dan changed hands between the Arameans and Israel at least four times, very possibly more. This was in the period when Ben-Hadid I was the king of Aram Damascus, and Ahab was ruling Israel. It was during this time, and more specifically when the Arameans controlled Dan, that the Tell Dan Stele was inscribed. This was the same ongoing conflict that led to a further southward expansion of the Arameans into more Israelite territory. The Kingdom of Israel would initially become a vassal state, but rebel and win back their freedom. But it was only temporary, as the Assyrians would invade again, this time led by the legendary Tiglath-Pileser III, with the entire Israelite kingdom falling to him in 733 BC. Fast forwarding nearly 3,000 years in 1992, and in order to clean up the archaeological site to make it more visitor friendly, a large mound of debris was removed. Only after this, and indirectly because of it, the debris was discovered to be dated to this same invasion. Also, the cleanup led to a previously undiscovered and earlier entryway into the ancient city. This city entrance opened to a courtyard paved with stone and a low stone platform, all of this thought to date to earlier than the 9th century BC, so well before the Assyrians came along and likely after the Danites arrived. Then, sometime in the 9th century BC, the podium was enlarged and major fortifications built, including a city wall complete with buttresses, along with a relatively complex gate to the city. The podium was enlarged further in the 8th century BC, most probably due to an initiative of King Jeroboam II. Not long after it was constructed, the invading Assyrian forces destroyed it. At the other gate, there was a raised square platform that could be reached by two steps. At the corners of the platform were decorated stone sockets that may have been used to hold poles that in turn held up a canopy. In my mind's eye, this is where a sovereign may have sat to address the people. 
scholars have suggested something similar, such as a king sitting in a chair on the platform rendering judgment over the people. What happened in Dan after the Assyrians has been lost to the passage of time, though artifacts seem to indicate the city remained a religious center through the era when it was controlled by the Persians, Greeks, and Romans. This may have also included the continued use of these raised platforms. And I'm going to pause here for a second to explore the geography of the city, as it's necessary to understand the modern history of that place. The ancient city of Dan was located in an area known as the Galilee Panhandle. To the west is the southern slope of Mount Lebanon. To the north and east are the Hermon Mountains. Melting snow from the Hermon Mountains provides the majority of the water for the northern Jordan River, the part north of the Sea of Galilee. And, as the snow melts and water flows, it passes by Dan all of this water proving advantageous to agriculture and making the area around the city more fertile and lush than is typical for the region. Because of this, and as seen in the history since it was first occupied, many different groups sought to control the city. It would remain minimally occupied through the Ottomans and into the British Mandate period. Then, in 1939, a few immigrant Jewish farmers who relocated from the Transylvania region of Romania moved to this region in the British Mandate and began to turn the soil. Their population grew, though it was deeply impacted during 1948's Arab-Israeli War. Since that time, and through the establishment of the modern Israel, the city, really a small town, has been focused primarily on agriculture and, surprisingly, aquaculture. The residents constructed man-made reservoirs for fish farming, and from these sprang up the harvesting of caviar that is prized and exported to all parts of the globe, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue my push through the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.